They are called street screechers. If you have never had the misfortune of meeting one, I pray that the Lord spares you. Uh, They are people that call themselves Christians that feel that they are called to a very specific form of public prophetic ministry. Uh, What that really means, though, is that they go into a very public place and preach with two main attributes, volume and venom. Uh, They are known for going to street corners and public places and screaming at the top of their lungs that God hates people in their sins and that people are wicked and going to hell. There was a um, video that went viral just a couple years ago with some screechers that went into a Target. There's a group of about five or six of them walking up and down the aisles of the store. They're wearing shirts that have slogans on them that we would happily affirm. Things like the song we just sang, uh, the blood of Jesus cleanses sin. Jesus saves on their shirts. As they are screaming at the top of their lungs, God hates people that shop in this store. They call people names that I will not repeat from this pulpit. Uh, at one point, at the end of the video, they're walking out. They got into a verbal altercation and, with somebody, and uh, one of the men said, um, now I know why you shop here. God hates people that shop here. Now, it's not hard to see that there's something wrong with that, right? Um, even if there is some aspect of kernel of truth there, it, it's been lost, so imbalanced that it's lost on the equal truths of God's mercy, the call for us to be gentle and have respect for those we share the gospel with. The Christian life is something that requires balance. Maybe on the other end of things, you've met a Christian that just seems like they're a bit spiritually naive. Maybe again and again, they make the same sort of mistakes, maybe getting taken advantage of, and maybe over time you start to think, wow, they might actually be enabling this person to perpetuate sin to the point where they're becoming party to it all in the le- name of love and mercy. At some point, every Christian needs to know there's a line that needs to be drawn. The question is, where? See, the Christian life is not something that you can just watch a few YouTube videos one afternoon and by that evening, be good to go, be a totally mature, balanced follower of Jesus. We require a level of spiritual balance that we can't find within ourselves. It doesn't come overnight comes from heaven, from God himself. That's what Jesus is going to show us this morning. In in four sections, we move through Matthew 7, 1 through 12, Jesus is going to show us that we all need spiritual balance. And that's not something we'll find in ourselves, but with the help of God, we will find that we will treat others the way that they ought to be treated. We'll see that first in verses 1 through 5. We'll see the need for balance with our brothers. Then in Verse verse 6, we'll see the need for balance with beasts. Then in verses 7 through 11, we'll see the source of our balance from heaven itself. And then finally in verse 12, we'll see the result of balance, treating others as they ought to be treated. Let's begin by looking in verses 1 through 5. The need for balance with your brothers. Now, it used to be that the most famous Bible verse was undoubtedly John 3.16. If you asked a random person, what does the Bible say? They might have memorized this as a child. Uh, It would be held up at stadiums and on bumper stickers. It's a good verse. It encapsulates a lot of biblical truth. For, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
These days, studies show that if you ask someone about the verse in the Bible they know, the most likely answer is actually Matthew 7.1. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, usually it's said with a little bit of relativistic moralism underneath it. Judge not, lest you be judged. Therefore, you should not call anything off limits out in society. Judge not, lest you be judged. Therefore, you should not point out anything you don't like about the way I live. In other words, let me live the way I want. The Bible says, stay out of my life. Thank you very much. Now, right on the front end, let's just, on the very surface level, see that this passage won't let us go there as Christians. I mean, just down in verse 6, read with me. Jesus says, Do not give the dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. I mean, clearly Jesus thinks someone's a dog and someone's a pig. We'll get to interpreting that in a second, but some sort of judgment is going on there. Or how about in verse 15 through 20? He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That whole section is going to be about how can you tell someone who's a false teacher from a real teacher? Clearly, some sort of differentiation needs to happen here. So what in the world is Jesus warning against when he tells us, judge not, lest ye be judged? Well, he's warning against what you might call judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is not um, making rational, accurate judgments. It's that tendency of our hearts that notices the sins of others more readily than it notices our own sins that wants to condemn others for things that we ourselves are happy to do. Jesus warns us against judgmentalism in two ways. First, he tells you that you're actually setting yourself up to be judged by God in verses 1 and 2. Judge not lest you be judged. The idea there is pretty simple. If you engage in this sort of condemning attitude unjustly towards others on the final day, you might expect to find God judging you. He expands that idea in verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Back uh, 2,000 years ago, the Jews in Jesus' day uh, often talked about the final day of judgment, and God had, as if he had two different cups that you might receive from. One cup had mercy, and the other cup was his cup of justice. You want the cup of mercy, not the cup of justice. Jesus picks up on this same sort of image, and he says that whatever cup you treat others with, that's the cup you should expect on the final day. It's a very similar thought to what Paul had in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip there. Romans 2, verse 1. Apostle Paul wrote, he said, Therefore... You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What is this that's so wrong about this sort of condemning, unjust judging? Well, it proves we know well and good what God's law is, even as we break it ourselves. Back in 2008, there was a judge named Mark Ciavarella, along with another judge in Pennsylvania, that were involved in a scandal called Kids for Cash. 
uh, they were involved in like the juvenile justice system, and so they would get these kids that would get into trouble coming to their courts. And it was up to them to hopefully put these kids on the path toward a, a, a upstanding, law-abiding life. Instead, they used it as an opportunity to line their pockets. They made some deals with the juvenile detention institutions, and they got kickbacks for every kid they sent to one of these facilities. By the time the whole thing was unearthed, they had received over $2 million in kickbacks and sent hundreds of kids to sentences way above what would be expected for anyone else doing those crimes. Is, you notice how awful that is? Because it's a judge that is supposed to know the law and uphold it, their sin is magnified even more. So it is with any of us that imagine we should take up God's gavel and sit on his bench of justice. Friends, realize we are not fit to be the judge of men or angels. We're not fit to sit in judgment on others without the ability to read people's hearts the way God himself can. And yet how quickly we do it, don't we? Catch yourself as you have a conversation about someone when they're not around, how, how quickly your opinion of them kind of sneaks out as you talk about something they did. You can see how quickly you notice your spouse's shortcomings while conveniently forgetting about your own. Jesus warns us we're setting ourselves up for judgment on the final day when we engage in judgmentalism. Now, this isn't a form of works-based salvation. He's not saying by staying out of people's lives somehow or the other that you keep God's judgment off of you. No, what he's getting at here is that when we engage in judgmentalism, it really shows that we don't understand grace. We imagine we're somehow different, that others are worse off than we are. Remember this Jesus who's preaching in the Sermon on the Mount is the one that told us, only those spiritually bankrupt enter the kingdom of heaven. Only when you recognize your great need for grace can you even begin to call yourself a child of God. The second warning Jesus gives us is in verses 3 through 5. It's that you make yourself unfit for the task of helping others. He uses a rather absurd analogy. It's intended to be funny. He says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own eye. Now, I don't know how good your vision is, but uh, most of the time we do not have good enough vision or we don't stand close enough to each other to notice if you've got like an eyelash or a little thing in your eye. Uh, maybe if someone asked you to come, hey, can you help get me an eyelash out? Maybe at that point you might notice it, but uh, it's pretty hard to spot little specks. The, the Greek word used there could be used for a splinter or a little moat of dust. Jesus imagines that you're just hanging out with somebody and you notice, oh, there's a little something in your eye there. But the absurd part of it is what's in your own eye. He, the ESV translates it a plank. The Greek word used here is used in other Greek writings to describe a wooden beam that would be used in a battering ram. Something big enough to knock down city walls. Now, imagine that image. Try to visualize it, if you will. You're, you're, you're noticing this tiny little thing in someone's eyes, and you literally have a battering ram jutting out from your face. It's meant to be funny, guys. Uh, <laughs> Jesus is using the absurd here to illustrate that our hearts are so quick to pick up on other sins and so slow to pick up on our own. 
he extends the analogy in verses 4 and 5. He says, or, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So now he says, uh, uh, as ridiculous as it is to have this battering ram coming out of your eye, what if you decided to engage in a little bit of eye surgery with that thing? You're not going to be able to help anyone. You're going to at best hurt somebody. At, at worst, you're going to totally blind someone because you can't see what you're doing. My parents told me of a friend of theirs who was an optometrist that was driving in New Orleans across this uh, long bridge that they have, uh, have there. And uh, while he's driving along, he and his wife are going along. And th this bridge has no place to stop, no shoulders. You just got to keep going once you're on it. And uh, so he's driving along, and he happens that day to be wearing some experimental contact lenses. And so you can almost see where this is going, right? Uh, he's, right as he gets on the bridge, the contact lenses both slide up behind his eyes. And suddenly, he is functionally blind. He cannot see what's going on at all. There's nowhere to stop, so his wife wins some sort of spouse merit badge. She, like, leans over and grabs the wheel and from the passenger seat, like, steers the car and keeps it on the bridge until they get across the other way. Now, I don't care how good of a doctor he was, how good of an optometrist, I don't care. That's not the guy you want working on your eyes that day, right? You want someone that can see clearly. That's delicate work. Now, Jesus is not here saying that we ought to stay out of each other's lives. We ought to be loving by disengaging and never say anything critical to anyone else. Verse 5 tells us we're supposed to clear our eyes so we, in turn, can actually help others clear their eyes. No, but what Jesus is saying is that we need to do a little self-diagnosing, a little introspecting. We've got to deal with our own sin before we're fit to actually help others. You have to keep your spiritual eye clear if you could possibly be any use to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the things that our small groups have as our, one of our values in them is that they're intentionally invasive, is what way we call it. There are too many spots in Scripture that tell us that we need each other. We need to be encouraged. Sometimes we need to be corrected, even rebuked. I hope you desire that for someone to speak into your life if you were to stray from the, the gospel of Jesus. Yet, friend, you can't do that unless you are aware of your own sin and actively repenting before the Lord again and again, keeping your eye clear so you can actually see things as they are. Jesus warns us here, be careful of being judgmental, judgmentalism. Sin in your heart will blind you. John Stott says this. He said, we have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the gravity of our own. We seem to find it impossible when comparing ourselves with others to be strictly objective and impartial. On the contrary, we have a rosy view of ourselves and a jaundiced view of others. Indeed, what we often are doing is seeing our own faults in others and judging them vicariously. That way we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. Before we dismiss this morning, we're going to actually come to the Lord's table. And that is a built-in reminder that God has given us of our ongoing need for forgiveness and grace. Not that 
we're once for all forgiven on the final day again and again, but that there's a, a relationship before God that needs to be restored. Our spiritual eyes need to be cleansed. I encourage you, use that time to ask yourself some questions. Is there anything before the Lord that I need to deal with? Jesus warns us, you need balance with your brothers. You need to avoid judgmentalism. Now, if it's true that we need to be careful of judgmentalism, it's also true that we need to be able to draw a line in the sand. As Charles Spurgeon put it, Christians are not judges, but they're not simpletons either. That's what Jesus shows us in verse 6, the need for balance with beasts. There are some verses in the Bible that, for whatever reason, don't end up crocheted on pillows. Um, verse 6 would be one of those. Um, do not give the dogs what's holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Uh, just because this is probably not on your child's memory verse list does not mean it's not important. In fact, it balances out what came before beautifully. Jesus here uses some rather striking images yet again, this time of vicious beasts. Now, we have a little work to do because we have domesticated animals, and we think of dogs and pigs. We think of cute and cuddly lap dogs, or we think of little pigs with curly little tails. Not so in the ancient East, especially not so for a faithful Jew. When, when they thought of dogs, they saw, thought of wild scavengers. There's a writing from one rabbi that said, if you go out and feed any dogs, make sure you bring a big stick with you because you're going to have to fight your way back out. The dogs would literally bite the hand that fed them. Pigs were no better off. They were unclean animals. They were forbidden from being eaten or touched in the law. No good Jew would go near them. Jesus uses these animals as examples of people that respond especially harshly to the gospel. He, sa he says that these, uh, these people will respond completely unable to value the thing you are putting before them. The idea of something holy before a dog, probably the temple sacrifices of meat. You can imagine taking meat that had just been offered to God and, and taking it to these wild scavenging dogs and tossing it in front of them. They're not going to treat that meat with any sort of reverence. In fact, they're going to turn and attack you. The second image is of taking valuable pearls and tossing them in front of a pig. The pig will probably think that they're seeds or pods, and once he crunches on one and maybe cracks a tooth, he's going to be angry with you and come after you. Jesus is here warning about how sometimes people, by their very conduct, do not respond to the gospel in such a way that they should be offered it again and again and again. There comes a point where a Christian needs to know how to draw a line in the sand. Because to further present the gospel actually would be to do harm. Now, let me just say as a caveat, I don't think that you should come to that conclusion quickly or without a broken heart. In all my time as a Christian, that's only been a situation I think has happened to me once. I was on a college campus, and I was developing an evangelistic sort of relationship with a guy that had come to kind of an evangelistic rally type event. He was an atheist and had lots of deep philosophical questions, and being in seminary, I felt like I had answers that maybe other people didn't have, and so he and I ended up, over the course of several months, really going deep. I really prayed for that guy. I mean, there were several points where I thought he was close to coming to faith. 
remember one time in particular, I was laying out the gospel yet again as winsomely as I could, and he actually told me that he wishes he believed that was true. And then it was like the veil went over his eyes. There was a turning point. And from that day forward, he became more and more antagonistic to God and the gospel. He started using our meetings to try and say the most vile things he could in front of me until I would get up and walk away. Instead of getting better, no matter how hard I prayed, the prayed it just seemed to get worse. After several months, I came to the conclusion I just was making things worse by continuing to meet with them. I felt like such a failure. I felt like somehow I had done something long along, along the way. And yet over time, God's given me peace about that. There are some points where the balanced, mature Christian thing to do is to walk away. Now, it requires great maturity to know that. And I don't pretend that I have some special ability to do that, friend. I I can't give you five principles to make sure you walk away at the right time. And yet, you're called to it, friend. There's a point where you need to say, God's name is too valuable for me to allow this person to continue to blaspheme. All I'm doing is increasing their guilt. I'm not getting through to this person. Out of love, I actually need to disengage. You know, Jesus himself told his disciples to do this. When he sent out the 12 in Matthew 10, he told them they go into a, a, a town, and if they were received, they're to stay and preach the gospel. But if they're rejected, they're supposed to shake out their robes and go off to a different town. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. He would go to a city, and he, he would preach, and he would plead, even sometimes for weeks and months. And, and then if, if it got harsh enough, he would go off to the next town. Friends, it requires great, great grace to know when that moment has been reached. And yet we're told we must make that judgment. That requires wisdom. It requires great spiritual balance. I don't know about you, when I hear that I'm called to make these sort of determinations, I feel my need, I feel my lacking. Which is why I'm so thankful that Jesus next shows us where we can find that sort of grace. The source of our balance, thirdly, in verses 7 through 11. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Three times here, Jesus tells us where it is you can find that sort of spiritual maturity and balance. He says, ask for it. Three different ways, all with images designed of getting someone's attention, pleading for something. Really just an invitation for us to come and pray. Why does Jesus tell us to do it? Because he knows Friends, none of our hearts have this in us by default. None of us will by default make the right judgments of when to give a hard word, when to give a soft one, when to press in, when to pull back. This is something that has to happen by God's grace. I mean, think about it. What was it that got you into the kingdom in the first place? You didn't get in because you were so good at keeping God's law. If you're a Christian, it's because of the gift that God gave you. That he would send his own son to die for your sins and actually adopt you into his family. You didn't do anything to earn that. So now we're going to turn around and think that we need to somehow or the other earn our way or work our way into this sort of maturity. 
Now, Jesus is here promising that we can come to God and pray for it. And we know he will be delighted to answer that prayer. Now, there are some that use these verses, uh, particularly in the prosperity gospel movement, to say that God will answer any prayer prayed in the right way. Uh, maybe you pray with enough faith, or maybe you pray with the right words, or maybe you pray repeatedly. Whatever it is, it's a, a blanket promise here that a Christian can ask anything of God and get it. There is one Bible study principle that will save you so much misinterpreting of the Bible, friend. It is context. Uh, just notice with me that verses 1 through 5, 1 through 6, all about how it is that you treat other people with balance, right? And then verse 12, read with me. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and prophets. Also about how you treat others. It's a very strong clue whenever you see a theme like that, that whatever's in the middle, if you have any ambiguity, it's probably on the same topic. Jesus is here showing us that when we do not in of ourselves have the wisdom and maturity in order to make these right judgments, that we are told we can ask God and he will fill up what's lacking. Gospel of grace saves us. The gospel of grace provides us with all that we need so that we can live as disciples in this kingdom, including how to have balance, no matter who it is that we are talking to. Finally, in verse 12, we see what it is that it looks like when someone is given this sort of grace, the result of balance. Jesus says that whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and prophets. If you flip back with me to chapter 5, look at verse 17. Notice that that verse also mentions the law and prophets. Do not think I came to abolish the law and prophets. I have not to come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. As we've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that this whole section has really been teasing out how it is God's law the Old Testament scriptures are not done away with, but actually fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 12 is the bookend. He started with the law and prophets, and he ends with the law and prophets. This is the conclusion of this whole section. And he ends it with a punchy little summary statement that you could put on a bumper sticker. A summary of what the whole of the law and prophets is saying to us. It's as if you could take the Old Testament and, and shove it into a, a juicer. This is what would come out, and it's this. You treat other people the way you want to be treated. Now, Jesus is not the first person to have taught something like this. There was a rabbi in, uh, around the time Jesus is, uh, was alive, Rabbi Hillel. Um, he taught something called the silver rule. It's you don't do anything to anyone that they would not want done to them. In other words, you don't cause any harm. That's close to what Jesus said. But Jesus actually takes it a step further. He says, in fact, you have to do to people what you want done to you. In other words, it's not just the sins of commission, not the things that you do to people. It's also the sins of omission, the things that you ought to do to other people and leave undone that he is concerned with. What he describes then in this one verse is really the balanced, mature Christian. You're able to treat every single person you meet precisely the right way. 
If that were the case, friends, judgmentalism would be gone. We'd see ourselves first and foremost as those who required the sinless Son of God to die for us, to pay for our sins. Only the blood of Jesus is the reason we have any hearing and hope before God. We'd also do away with being naive. We would know just how serious our sins are before God. We would know just how holy His name is. That He would send His Son to deal with sin so He could be both just and merciful. It would exclude the possibility that we would just shrug our shoulders at sin. Sort of balance that Christians need for everyday relationships It's the sort of balance that only the cross can provide. So friends, when you struggle to know how how is it that I am to respond to this person, well, remember that you were invited to pray and to ask God for grace. But also remember that you can look to the example of the one who hung on that cross for you, who always did this very thing perfectly. He hung out with sinners, the worst of sinners. And yet he told them he didn't come to condemn them, but to save them. He cared about God's holiness. He knew when to draw a line in the sand. There are some people he wouldn't talk to. And yet he gave up his life so that God's name might be glorified the way it ought to, that it might be hollow. We look to the, na- to the, to the example of our Lord Jesus, and we see perfect balance that each and every one of us need. If you've never read the book by Corey Ten Boone, The Hiding Place, uh, it's a Christian classic, you ought to. Uh, I love the way she describes her father. She speaks of this man who seems to have endless supply of mercy and grace and love for people, constantly inviting people into his house, constantly overlooking the faults in people. She writes that she was frustrated because he would always seem to defend people when she would get upset at them seemed like this was a man that didn't have anything but mercy in his heart. Except for one story she shares in the book. There's one point where you see that this man knows where to draw the line. He's a very godly man. And he brought on apprentices into his watch and clock shop. We'd have them sometimes even live in the house with them. This one time, near, right near the start of World War II, he brought a German apprentice on who was a member of the Nazi party. Uh, Over the time he was there, he started to say and do things that were really cruel, really getting Corey and her sisters upset. Again and again, her father would seem to cover them over and say, oh, he's just misunderstood. He just was taught poorly. Yet one day, he could not overlook what this man did. He uh, was caught uh, essentially beating up an old peddler that they would do business with. And once enough witnesses corroborated what had gone on, her father realized it was time to draw the line. He, he fired the man and sent him away. And I was struck by the way she described him doing that. She said he did so with great sorrow as he sent him away. I think that ought to characterize us. I, I wonder what it would be like if more of us are, are like that rare individual you meet that near the end of her life, has just been so softened by the gospel, so softened by the grace of God, that you just know that person knows Jesus because they look a lot like him. 
how many times do we respond differently when we're out witnessing? How, how many times do we respond differently when we notice a sin in someone else? How many times might we know how to more wisely draw a line in love and limit the amount of evil people can do? What would it be like to have a whole church full of people like that? Or to live in a city full of Christians like that? We need spiritual balance. Let's at least ask God for it. I mean, we, we're so quick to pray for our circumstances and our comforts and the things we want, and those are good things to pray for. But friends, we need to pray that God would spiritually mature us because that's a prayer he loves to answer. And that's the only way we'll be useful as Jesus wants to, us to be here. That's the only way we'll have spiritual balance. In just a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And this is an opportunity for us to check our own eyes, to make sure we've spiritually cleaned our inner eyes so that we can actually be useful to help others. Make the most of that opportunity, friend. If there's something that you have not dealt with before the Lord, do it this morning. It's the only way that you'll be fit, be useful to other believers. Let's go before the Lord in prayer.